We're continuing with this doctrine of church discipline. Excuse me if I look a little closer at my notes. Seems that my glasses have fallen out of my coat or were taken out and not put back in. And so I don't have glasses with me this Lord's Day. We're dealing with this doctrine of church discipline. And it is a very important doctrine. Do you understand? This is the point in which you and the church formally are seeking to personally help people walk in the Christian faith aright. It teaches us humility. It teaches us to examine our life. It teaches us duty one to another. It teaches us that when we care for people's soul, and that's what we're dealing with here, We're dealing with the souls of people that we say we love. And if we don't care for this church discipline, you might as well look at them and say, go to hell, I don't really care about you. Because in essence, that's what you're doing. How important to help and to want to help those who say that they are of Christ to walk faithfully in the word of the living God. How important. Your duty, my duty, our goal It's not to be mean, but in love and in kindness, in desire to help those who have fallen along the way and become blind to their own sin, to encourage them, you must, you must reconcile with God and with Christ, with the Spirit of God. You must reconcile with the body of Christ, with the family of God. It is so important that you do that. The world would devalue, Satan would love to just chew you up and spit you out. There's what I think of those who call themselves children of God. You're nothing. And rather than running to our true refuge, which is Christ, we become consumed with our sin. So much so, it really reveals our own human nature, does it not? When you got a little bit older and you were not as easy to trip up in life. 
I mean, when you're little, there's you know, it doesn't take a lot of work to to trip you up, and 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 you know, they're small enough that. Did you take the cookie out of the cookie jar? And when you're standing there with a cookie and a bite out of it, it's pretty evident. Yeah, you did that. Why did you do that? Didn't you get told that? Yeah, I wanted a cookie. Okay. That's the wrong thing to do. we got to punish you for it. And you get punished next time you ask for the cookie. Now, that's it's pretty easy life. But when we get older, we don't want to hear about our sins. Anger. Anger, I tell you. Brother, you know that you, you've got this sin. I know it. I don't like it. Don't point it out to me. They get angry. Well, you do that. Kids do it growing up. What kid wants his parents telling him throughout his life, you did this wrong. And then it transfers to your boss. And that transfers to your neighbor. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's constantly transferring to somebody else. Or even to a friend. And it makes you mad. You're not really mad that you sinned. The sin was pleasurable for a season, the Bible says. You're mad because you got caught. You thought you were hiding it. From the world, and the world caught you up in your sin. It's not that you sin that surprises me. I look out here, and everyone I look at, guess what? You're sinners. I look in the mirror, guess what? I'm a sinner. What can I expect? Even in redemption, what can I expect? Failure. It comes. We sin. We're told to get back up on that bike and ride it. That bike of sanctification and keep pushing toward the celestial kingdom. But we don't stop. But rather than get angry with ourselves, we take the anger usually out on someone else, especially if they're pointing out our failure. You've been down this road. You know what I'm talking about. You hate it. Everybody I know of hates it. Why do they hate it? They hate it because... They've been caught. They've been caught and they thought no one can catch me. Now I've been caught and they know I'm a sinner. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you now you're already a sinner. You're going to sin this week. But you who have the Spirit of God, you're going to Seek to get repentance. You're going to ask God to help you overcome this sin. You're going to double down on it. You're going to try to walk in holiness. And you're going to try to seek out people to say, would you pray for me? Would you encourage me? Will you check with me? If I need encouragement or help, can I come to you? 
and depend upon you to be there for me as I labor in this war against sin. That's what church discipline is all about. Well, as we move on in this series, we're coming now to sermon number 16. I want to move on to the next step, which is how important it is to come to this formal state of correction. Everything up to this point has been informal. Self-control, one-to-one confrontation, one-to-two confrontation, Two, possibly three. It could be more if necessary. And the next step, take it to the elders of the church. Taking it to the church. You turn it over to those who are the head of the church, and they've got to carry out that work of reconciliation from there themselves. Well, we said Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 is probably one of the most main key verses that we think of in church discipline. Again, let me note two things. The first three steps deal with private personal sin. When you go to step four, that may be a sin that now has to be taken to the church, but yet may not be made public unless the person resists and refuses to seek forgiveness and to deal with their sin. But also, steps two, three, and four may not count if it's a public sin. If others know it, if the church knows it or some portion thereof, then it's a public sin. And it's to be dealt with in public because it's known. This person's in sin. Should we allow our churches to say, you know what? Our church don't care. Sin all you want. They're not going to say anything to you. Oh, they'll pat you on the back and say, oh, pray about it, brother, and we'll pray for you. That's the end of it. But they're not going to confront you with your sin. And that's what we do in the church. We confront one another with sin. We do it in counseling. We do it in our Christian walk. Well, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, if you will, let's read again. And I quote, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, You have gained your brother, hearing. He hears what you say. He recognizes what you've said is true. And he repents of it and you gain your brother. He says, yes, you're right. I've done this very thing. But if he will not hear, if he will not receive the fact that you have said to him, you've transgressed against me, he says, Take with you one or two more that they by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. 
Note they don't start by calling them witnesses. He says, go take two or three more. The assumption is in the context, people of the church, that you may establish not only in counseling what is right, but also that they may be witnesses if it must go on to the next step that we're looking at today. And if he refuses to hear them, you can see their counselors, tell it to the church. That's step four. That's where we're at today. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Up to this point, the church has a duty to become involved in their life. The church has a duty to tell him his sin, not just from the elders, but from the people. We will not tolerate this kind of sin. We will not let you live in, we love you enough to confront your sin. Why, if a Christian is saved and really wants to hate his sin, why would he get mad at anybody who comes in love with kindness and says, you're in sin, you need to get rid of this. It's going to kill your soul. This may be the telltale story of who you are. You're not really a Christian. You say that with your lips, but you don't live it. And living is everything. Saying is cheap. Words are cheap. Let him be like a heathen a tax collector. Then comes what? The declaration and the removal of his membership status. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Think about this. God says, I'm going to give the power of the church to bind and to loosen. He's talking about church discipline. I'm going to bind you to what they disciple you with. That is, if they remove you, or I'm going to loosen you if you gain repentance. But he says that is pending the church. Whatever the church determines, I am going to bind as well or loosen. It's a great amount of power not to be trifled with. It's not where you want to go. It's not what you want to be. You want to be the person who reconciles the marriage with Christ. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree upon earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. 
we began four Sundays ago speaking about this process of church discipline. We've talked first about the confessional perspective on church discipline and censorship. What does the doctrine of church censorship look like? Now we're talking about the process of it. You have the doctrine, and then you have the process. And we said, look, church discipline comes from the etymological principle or idea of learning. Discipline is to teach you to learn. It is educational. It's someone teaching, or if you will, tutoring you how to live the Christian life. We have said that it is both a positive and a negative structure and everything. It's the do's and the don'ts. It's the violation of the law of God. You can't do this. You must do this. You're prohibited from that. You must do this. So let us look then, if we could, at this fourth step. Let us consider now step four in this process of church discipline, which is what? Tell it to the church. The reason for taking this next step from three to four is really fairly simple. If the offender does not listen to the counselors or those witnesses, which is the issue or the problem, it in this very case. At this point of reconciliation, they're left with nothing else but to take it to the church. I've tried. You've made it clear. You're not going to listen to what is being said. At each stage, the process moves forward when the offender refuses to listen and to do reconciliation, seeking to achieve that relationship that needs to be restored both with our God and with the church. This must be a genuine refusal, we said, if you remember last week. Not merely an unreasonableness, i.e., or a misunderstanding that is taking place. It may require more than one attempt at reconciliation. It may be that we say, look, we want to help you with this. We'll put you in counseling. Counseling is discipline. If all teaching, all instruction, all tutoring is discipline, you're in it. Counseling is discipline. But it's more than just going one time and saying, okay, step three was tonight, step four is next week. No. I've never dealt with somebody in that way. It takes time. 
It takes time. They don't understand, and you're trying to teach them. But when they make it clear, we're not going to be taught anymore. We're done with this. It's our way or the highway for us. You're done. You're done. Thus, we must discern the difference between unwillingness to listen and a failure to understand. But sometimes the failure to understand morphs into an unwillingness to listen. And that's something you need to be careful of, just as I would need to be careful of if the Presbytery was addressing me over an issue as if the church would be addressing you or a friend would be addressing you. Do not let your failure to understand become the stumbling block upon which you become unwilling to listen to the truth. So it is we have this duty to elaborate the position. We have a duty to hear what they're saying. It's too easy to justify yourself. Well, I was offended. They may have really been offended. You could say, well, you know, I didn't mean to offend you. Now, if I said to Pastor Jason, just to use him as an example, because Pastor Enro's is not here, although I should use Pastor Enro because he's not here, but I'll use Pastor Jason. Pastor Jason comes and says to me, now look, I've got this problem. You've offended me. And if I say to him, well, I didn't intend to offend you, does that do away with the offense? Think about it. And I know this is hard, but I want you to think. Let's see a little bit of smoke coming out the ears. Grind them brains until you get them moving here. If he says you offended, and I say, well, that was never my intention, did that resolve the offense? And the answer is no. Now, you could say, well, in what I was seeking to do was this. But let's say you didn't achieve that. I gave a really elaborate answer to Pastor Jason and said, yeah, well, you got to understand what I was trying to do here. My intention was not to offend you. But if he's offended, am I now justifying my offense or am I seeking to seek reconciliation over my offense? I'm not seeking reconciliation with him. He's still offended. And I need to make it right. Too often we find justification. Well, 
if it wasn't for this or this, that wasn't the issue. I don't care what you intended to do. You did wrong. We all do that. I think every one of you are human. Man, there may be an alien or two among you, but maybe some of you are hybrids. I don't know, but seriously, you're human. There are times you're going to do something, and you're in, you're, I'm not questioning your intent. Did you want to offend this person? Of course not. Did you offend them? Yes. Can you justify it? No. What must you do? Make it right. Because the offense is real. Even if you didn't intend to, nevertheless, the offense is real. So it is when we have church discipline. You've sinned against God, against your Lord Jesus Christ, against the spirit that indwells you as you so profess, You've sinned in a way that has affected the church, whether it is one person or becomes more than one person or it includes the whole body. The bottom line in all this, you need to have a reasonable discussion about what the offense is. And if the offense is real, and it ought to be. I mean, how would you know it's not real except for the person who says, I'm offended? If it is a real biblically-based offense where you've done something that you should not have done, you can't justify it away. You must seek reconciliation over. Thus, the bottom line in all of this is that the unwillingness to listen is what disqualifies the offender from getting the benefit of the doubt. Doesn't take, it's not that a person doesn't say, yeah, I've done wrong. How could have I done it better? Show me, teach me, help me. Oh, man, you love those people. But as soon as they start in and say, well, now, wait a minute. I'm not sure I've done that. And pretty soon they're accusing you of not doing it right. You don't know what you're talking about. You're doing it all wrong, and you're not listening to what I'm telling you. Whereas he is supposed to be listening to you, He's not being reasonable, and he's going to become what? A person who's going to eventually say, I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. I'm done with you. You're unqualified. They'll throw all kinds of allegations at you. You're a hypocrite. You're this. You're that. I hope they always throw in you're a sinner saved by grace, because that's what I am. As soon as they start fighting, you know this isn't going to lead to reconciliation unless the Spirit of God, who truly does indwell them, and I hope he does based on their profession, says to them, 
What are you doing? You've sinned. You got forgiveness with Christ. Why aren't you seeking forgiveness? Because you're standing there like a little five-year-old child with a cookie in the hand. And you're enjoying it and you don't like the fact that you're caught. Drat. Caught again. This is the problem in dealing with people. The church would be perfect if it had no people in it. I'll tell you now, if you were all gone and this building was sitting here and every Sunday I came in and preached and every Sunday I came back and I preached again to the pews and the windows and everything else, one thing I can tell you for sure is I could live a life that is free from people who are acting in sinful ways. The church, the building doesn't sin. But as soon as you put people in the pews, as soon as you have a real pastor that's human too, you're going to have conflicts. Does that surprise you? It should not. The answer is what? We have got to resolve the conflicts. We're brother and sister in Christ. We ought to have a love like we would have for family. And not try to justify our sinful acts. Where there is real sin. Oh, a person could make an allegation that's wrong. But all you got to do is go to scripture and say, hey, you did this and this is wrong. You can't say that. You can't do that. So that can't be an offense. If anything, you've offended me. You've not lived by the word. The operative phase here in 18 and verse is in verse 16. He will not what? Listen to you. Or verse 17 even says a greater. If he refuses to listen. You get that? Doesn't mean he isn't sitting. Or she, I should say both. He or she is sitting at a table. Hearing. What he means is they're not receiving it. They're not agreeing with it. They're not willing to consider it. How many times do you hear people who come, and, and this has happened on the other end. You know, I don't think I handled something right that I said to you, oh, that's okay, don't worry about it. No, they need to worry about it. You need to forgive them. Forgiveness is a very big thing, too. How important. This whole thing 
of now going into the formal process of church discipline. Thus, this moves from an informal step to what? A formal step. Now you've gotten the church formally involved. Thus, the church, as not only the body, but also as the elders and the leaders of the church, they take recognition of the problem that has arisen and is not reconciled. The two believers couldn't work it out. The offender has reached the court of last resort. The last opportunity for him to repent. The last opportunity to be reconciled with the body of Christ. Not all cases end here. Some might begin Step four. But they may not go all the way through. They don't have to. If the person says, look, I get it. I may have sinned. Here's how I sinned. I understand. I want forgiveness. I want to ask for forgiveness. It's over. It's not a surprise that you sin. What's surprising is how hard it is you to ask for forgiveness. It really is. You've done wrong. I'll accept that. I want to see what scripture says. Show me how I've offended you. And what's shown the word and once you reasonably talk this out and explain it to me, I will seek forgiveness and reconciliation. I don't want to walk the path alone. How important all this becomes. We hope we have to go no further. Step four stops with the formal process. Could be counseling. Well, back to the drawing board. Let's go back and counsel. Okay, we just set the clock over and we go forward. We go back and we start counseling again. Something didn't take. Let's go over it again to figure out what the problem is. We know that something failed the first time. Why? But then they got those that go, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. No, I'm not going to hear you. I'm not going to reconcile. But I want you to note what is so important here? 
in Matthew 18, 17, he says, and if he refuses to listen to them, that is the church, the counselors, the witnesses, then they take it to the church and he's to hear the church. And if he refuses to what? Hear the church? They're to remove his membership. Declare him. Two of the worst things at that time you could be, a tax collector, one of the most hated people on God's earth, and a heathen, a person who acts in a willful, sinful way against what is right. Now, this is not a complete outline process. Of course not. Because if it was, it would be this step, this step, this step, step, step. Fifth week, you're out. It wasn't designed that way. But it's a design to teach us how to proceed and how to move it up each level if necessary when reconciliation is not brought forth. It is the due process that we derive from both it and from other scripture as well. Now, what is very important is how to handle this when it comes to the church. It really is. I.e., while you need to let people know the nature of the sin, I mean, if someone's offended and you've got to say to them, look, they won't repent, and we're trying to get repentance, but we're going to have to forbid them for taking the Lord's Supper, and here's why. Because they've done such and such. Telling the nature of the sin is not necessarily getting into all the details. Well, you know, brother so-and-so, he is... Uh, Committed adultery with his neighbor. Now, let me tell you what he did. No, you don't go into all the details of the sin. I don't even want to hear the details of the sin. i got to live with that in my mind. But you do need to tell people. Do you know what? As a church, while we are handling the formal side of discipline, you need to be saying to them, you need to get this right and get it fixed immediately. Because if you don't, we're not going to be your best buddy. We're not going to entreat you as a brother in Christ. If you're acting like hell, like Satan, why should I embrace you as a brother in Christ? That's really what you're asking. So we want to be careful that we never have TMI, too much information. But the nature of the sin will have to be revealed. Well, what did he do that he's in all this trouble? He did this. It's a violation of the law of God. He will not repent of it. Therefore, you need to know it. We're dealing with it. And we need you to stand with us and exhort him. You need to repent of your sin. You may be my best friend, but you're not free to live in sin. Neither am I. 
1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, How is it then, brethren? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all these things be done for edification. How do you have worship service when somebody isn't doing the things that will lead to edification? How does adultery lead you to edification? How does any sin lead a church to edification? You see, that's the real problem. We don't deal with our sins. And somehow we think, because God hasn't hung me out to dry yet, he hasn't beaten me like a red-headed stepchild yet, I must be okay. I'm getting by. I'll never forget, and a pastor friend of mine, an older gentleman who I love very much, was very helpful in mentoring me. He said, 40 years, 40 years, our Sunday school superintendent led our Sunday school. He did all the work of setting up all the classes, what they're going to teach, everything else. And one Sunday he comes forward at the end of the service. They had an altar call. He said to the pastor, can I say something to the church? He said, we've known him for years. And I said, yes. He said, he stood behind the podium and he said, for 40 years, I'm the one who's prepared all of your Sunday school lessons. I'm the one who has made sure there's been people to teach your classes, to make sure that everything that affected the Sunday school, I took care of. Today, in hearing the word of God, I came to a stark reality. I've never been saved. That's a harsh reality, isn't it? Forty years, and this was a Reformed preaching church. Forty years, I'm the one who pulled all the curriculum together, seen that we had people who could teach, made sure that the gospel of Christ and the word of God was taught to your children, and in 40 years, I never partook of that gospel. And he said he just broke down and wept. Do not be deceived. It's too easy to think just because you go along and get along that everything's okay. It's not. It's not. You need to examine your life constantly. And so it is the church when we come together for edification, and especially when we have people from the world in, that's not the time you tell people about. We don't get together and say, oh, guess what, this week, we're glad to have 20 visitors with us, and guess what, brother so-and-so is committing adultery with his wife. We don't do that. 
we would call for a private meeting of the members of the church. No visitors, no problem. But if you got visitors, then you have to have a private business meeting and say to the people of the church, this has happened. You need to realize it. This guy is not living the Christian life, or this girl's not living the Christian life. And they may be after your husband or your wife or your child. Who knows? Is that what you want? You want to live with that? How about they're tied up into some sin and they decide, you know what, I'll get some young kid from the church and I'll teach him to do the same sin I'm doing. Is that what you want? It's so easy to turn our head to sin. And it's so hard not to do what's right. So we must be careful. When some person is in sin, we don't. And they're in sin. I'm talking about they're committing the sin. We don't go into detail of that sin to that extent. We name it and the reason why we're dealing with it. And we move on. And that's all we've ever done. As a matter of fact, you know what? We've never. Do you realize that the historical practice of the Reformed Church is to contact every church within a 20-mile radius of your church and let them know these people have sinned, this is the sin they've committed, this is how they did it, and you need to know we had to put them out of the church. That was practiced. I've never done that. I've been very kind. As a matter of fact, I've never called somebody up and said, hey, do you know what? You just took some people into your church They've committed sin in our church and they wouldn't repent of it. And you've already brought sin into your church. Realize what you've done. We've never done that. And you'd think if we were right, we'd have every right to go tell people. You don't want them people involved with you. Now, when we've been under discipline with some families, we've written to church and said, you need to let us finish dealing with this family. They're under discipline. And we're concerned for their soul. We had that happen. And I wrote to the elders of that church. And I said, please do not get involved in the middle of this discipline. We need to handle this. This is a sin. We're afraid the family is going to get destroyed. Not only did they go and tell the church, well, that's not true. They're just being mean to me over there at Christ Presbyterian Church. They told other people, as far as New York City, I got a phone call. You're a rotten pastor, you and your elders of the church. You're no good for nothing, bunch of people. I wouldn't say what he said, but he had some nice adjectives he threw in. And I said, you don't understand. We're trying to deal with this family. And I really can't discuss it with you. 
You always know when you're doing the right thing because that couple or that individual, male or female, is going to go tell somebody else a lie and they're going to blab it all over the place on themselves. It'd be like going out and saying, you know, I robbed the Bank of America down on Main Street and didn't get caught. Let me tell everybody about it. <laughs> I don't get it. Why would you do that? Why would you go tell people how evil you are? Because in time, that evilness is going to be shown. Well, you know what happened? The church told them, you come up here. We'll take care of you. They believed it. We'll care for you. They're not caring for you. You know where they are today? The wife divorced the husband, left him all six kids. He had been a minister in our denomination and an assistant pastor at this church. We knew we had a problem. Presbyterian knew we had a problem. You know where he is today? He's married to a Roman Catholic person and is in the Roman Catholic Church, an apostate church. I'm not talking about somebody that wasn't. These were big, right-to-life people. They were involved. Getting involved in some kind of a cause doesn't make you a Christian. At all. We wanted to save the marriage. And they left and the church gave us no regard. I don't think much of that church. But you know what? I've never, I've had people come and say, well, we visited this church up there. They don't like you very well. Of course not. Every time we've had to deal with them, they've been proven wrong. They have a wicked, evil intent. Till now, I haven't said anything publicly. I ought to call them out by name. They got a pastor that didn't even qualify for the ministry. Most of these denominational people have told me that. But hey, I got nothing to win here. I've said all these years, taken every abuse, every name calling, every allegation from them and have said nothing. You know why? Because I'm not guilty of it. But they've got something to hide to be that evil. I expect Satan to throw darts at me. He hates the truth especially when you're doing the truth. He hates that worse than what you say. Preaching's one thing, living it is a whole other world. Did I want to see them end up in a divorce? No. Simply prove that I was right and they were wrong. But I'd exchange all of that for their souls.
because in the end, they're going to be in hell. And my job was to try to keep them out of there. What do you do? What do you do with people that are so obstinate in their sin that they're willing to lie, spread rumors, make allegations, innuendos, in order to escape judgment against themselves when in reality they're running toward the damnation of their own soul. What are you going to do with them? We wanted to discipline them. We did. We eventually just simply excommunicated him and said, cut it off. These are not people in Christ. How do I know that? I knew people that were members there who said, we're sorry. We're sorry this happened. We got no excuse. And we're sorry that what you were trying to fix fell apart here and were responsible for it. Well, that's not much reconciliation to all that for me. Doesn't make me happy. The very thing I wanted to see was them to work through, resolve their issues, and to glorify Christ. Didn't get there. And it hurts. It's a pastor standing as an appointed one for Christ. It's like you're my bride. And you don't love me. And you're willing to leave. And I've never asked anybody to sin. I've never asked them to commit adultery, to steal, to kill. I've never. I've never asked them to break the law of God. I've never asked them to violate the word of God. Yet they act as if you've done all those things. Not only act like it, but then they'll make that allegation to others when it's not true. And like Paul said on Ephesians, they have proven themselves to even be greater. Greater. Sinners. In the fires of hell. They have doubled up. They've become double. What they once were as a sinner. Better for them had they never ever become in contact with the church than to come, made a false profession of the faith, and to walk away from it, to be only judged by God. Do I rejoice in that? Not a bit. How can you rejoice when God's given you sheep and you love them, and they don't listen? If that was the case, I'd have hated my kids. Actually, they were really pretty good kids. But the truth of the matter is, 
Once they defy you once or twice, you just say, well, go on. I hate you. Just go ahead and do whatever you want to do. I never rejoiced over any times of trial and adversity. Never took my love from them. All I ever wanted. The only thing I've ever asked God for is that my children would walk in the faith and they'd be sensitive to the word of God and to the Christian life that they live. That's all I've ever asked for. It's amazing. It is really amazing. The road and the path that God has sometimes for us to walk, it's hard. There are times you go home and you weep and you just want to say, I'm done. And God says, no, you're not. They haven't rejected you, son. They've rejected me. You do what I told you to do, and then I'm going to deal with it. And that's a fearful thing. To fall in the hands of a living God, Paul says. And I fear for those who do. Our job is to make our lives right with God constantly. To ensure that we have love for one another, encourage one another, help one another, pray for one another. To ensure that we all reach the final destination of our soul. To make it to that celestial city. The pilgrim continuously in Bunyan's book was seeking to get there. Oh, it's a rough road. You're going to go through the valleys of despair. You're going to have one trial after another. But the question is, will you continue? Will you persevere? Will you keep your faith and trust in God? Will you reconcile with God and get back on that road? Life's hard. If you don't believe me, you should try it from this end. I'll never forget when we first started meeting with the young men of the church. Some problem had come up. I don't remember what it was now. But I remember one of the young men saying to me, does this happen very often? I said, welcome to the church of Jesus Christ. It never ends. Oh, there are good times and there's good people and you thank God for them. That's what gives you courage along with that work of the Spirit. Those who want to persevere, who want to live for him. But it's hard when you love people and they turn against you. I'm going to do it my way. And if you don't like it, tell. 
I'm going to do it my way. Don't work that way with God. Wish it did. <clears throat> we could save a lot of people. But the truth is, he's got a very narrow path. Narrow is the way and narrow is the path and few there be that walk therein. God save us from our own stupidity, our own blindness of thinking that that pleasure that we get from that season of sin is all we're going to get in the end. You've had your pleasure. You've enjoyed your sin. Now you're going to pay. God help us. Get a good look at your sin and your life. Shall we pray?